So last week, what we looked at was um, the famous central sugya of Hanukkah, which is here on uh, the beginning of this page. Um, I realigned the page from last time. I added new things, and I took out the exemplars from the from the printed shas because I know not you guys can all trust me that this is really the text. Um, and we looked at the first sugya, and we asked a few questions about it. I'm just going to quickly review the question so that we kind of come back to where you were last week. Um, this opening sugya, source four, uh, presents a brighta. Brightot, as we recall, of course, were all created in Eretz Yisrael, all in the Tanaitic era, which means that uh, before the year 220, certainly by the year 200. And um, we pointed out along the way, so mitzvat Chanukah, there we go, right there. Mitzvat uh, Chanukah ner ishuveto. Now, what we saw, what we looked at last week and looking at this, I pointed out that there are several inherent problems in this. And again, this sugya suffers from the same thing that Ashrei suffers from. You know, I've, I've, taught, I've taught Ashrei numerous times in the shul and other places, and it's always difficult because people know Ashrei so well, they don't realize how much they don't know it. And this is such a famous sugya, such a well-known sugya, People don't realize how many problems there are in looking at it. The first thing that's a problem is that the notion of Mahadrin, it doesn't exist anywhere else in the literature, meaning the no mitzvah is presented as saying, here's the basic way to do a mitzvah, and here's a nicer way to do the mitzvah. And certainly not, here's the nicest of the nicest. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is that Mahadrin, Minah Mahadrin, is where Echam and Hill have the disagreement. As they disagree in what seems to be the sort of the ultimate level, which is certainly all aesthetic. And in the context of this bright, that we would all agree that if you light a candle outside of your house, each night of Hanukkah, you fulfill the mitzvah. So what are they disagreeing about? In other words, uh, since the basic mitzvah is one nair, and then the nicer one is one nair per person, that when you start getting to one to eight or eight to one, at the end of that process, who cares? You've done the basic mitzvah. And Beitram and Hillel really should not be disagreeing much about that. Um, the third problem we have is what does mehadrin mean? And we saw here that Rashi used the phrase mehadrin achar hamitzvot. Now, we did this towards the end of the year, but if you remember, you all translated, as is commonly translated, and as the Rambam translates it, the word lahader means to beautify. And therefore, he dur mitzvah. Uh, but if the word lahader meant to beautify, then the preposition here is wrong. And Rashi knew Hebrew way better than that. It should have said v'hamhadrin et mitzvot. Those who beautify the mitzvah, mitzvot, which is exactly the way the Rambam phrases it right down here. Um, let's see. Um, right, v'hamhader et mitzvah, right there. That's the way you would say it in Hebrew. To, but Rashi says, which is a strange preposition, after the mitzvot. That's a bizarre thing. Um, and so we have to figure out what is going on in Mahadrin. The That's three problems. I could have made eight problems if I wanted to, but I'm not going to get stuck into that. I could have asked four questions, but it's not Pesach. So the three problems that we're going to deal with are those three in the first sugya. Then there are two additions to this sugya. One of them is a report from Eretz Yisrael where Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Yossi disagree. They don't know which one said what because the news about Yossi. 
and they disagreed about what Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel were disagreeing about. And this seems to exacerbate our second problem, which is if Beit Shemai and Beit Hillel are having this agreement and they're having this agreement about some sort of ultimate level, then now there's a disagreement about how to understand the disagreement becomes a little bit um, needlessly mazed, if you will, uh, needlessly entwined. It's kind of difficult. Um, uh, and then at the end, we have a report, which is also difficult, a report from Tzaydan, which is a town in, near Tveria, a town around the, the north shore of the Kinneret, that there were two elders in Tzaydan. One did like Beit Shammai, one did like Beit Hillel. And when asked, the one who did like Beit Shammai said, Kinegad Pareachag, and the one who did like Beit Hillel said, Demalim Bakodesh Fein Moridin. Well, there's a problem, which is, I think we mentioned this, is that by this time, the general ruling that we always follow Beit Hillel, unless one indicated differently, had already been presented. Not only that, but the notion that Beit Shammai is not a legitimate option and that there may even be serious consequences to following Beit Shammai was already recorded. If you recall in the Mishnah, in Masachet Brachot, being Dafyomi Denizens, that was only a, couple, you know, a year ago, um, less than a year ago, in Masachet Brachot, Rabbi Tarfon decides to be stringent. And in the evening, he's, uh, he's out on the road in the evening, it's time to say Shema, so he lies down by the side of the road and he almost gets killed. He comes into the Beit Midrash and says, I tried to be Machmir and follow Beit Shammai, who says that for nighttime Shema you have to lie down. And I, uh, I almost got killed. And they said, you deserve to get, almost get killed because after all, you, try, you violated the words of Beit Hillel. So how do these two elders comfortably live in the same town? One does Beit Shammai and one does Beit Hillel. We have a problem of Agudot Agudot, which is of having different... Uh, schools of thought in the same town halachically, which is not acceptable. And uh, how is Beit Shammai even an option at this point? It should be an O'Brien we do Beit Hill, which is what we all do. I've never met anybody who lights eight the first night and descends, but uh, how's that happening in the third century? So we have a whole host of questions right here. Um, the next sugya right here, and this is, goes right in order of the Gemara, I didn't clip any, this is right in order, Again, a brighta, again, Eretz Yisrael, again, before the conclusion of the period of the Mishnah, so before 220. Uh, it's a mitzvah, the mitzvah of is to put it outside of your door, uh, outside of your doorway. And then if you live in a loft, you put it in the window. And then sakana, when we're in danger, you put it on your table and that's good enough. Okay, that part is fine. However, Rashi's commentary on Shata Sakana is difficult because Rashi says that when, when he's explaining what the Sakana is in the Brita, he re references us to the Chabari, which are the Zoroastrian priests who after the year 227, when the Sasanians took uh, power, they were given lots of leeway to enforce their religious rules in the community. And therefore, Rashi says that they had a rule that if there was a, if it was their holiday, they could enforce that there be no candles lit anywhere but in their temple. Now, I'm not concerned with the historicity of it. I'm concerned with Rashi says, because Rashi is saying, when the Brita says Shata Sakana, it is referring to a Persian or Babylonian Sakana that doesn't start until at least 10 years after the end of the, of the Tanaitic era, more or less. 
So how do we understand this Brita? Now, if you want to explain Shata Sakana differently, like to say that the Brita is is forecasting. If there comes a time that there's anti-Semitism and it's dangerous to put your nair outside, you can put it indoors, fine. But Rashi puts it into a historic context, which doesn't fit the time of the Brita. Right? And so what I quoted here in source eight and nine is just to where Rashi gets it from. There's several sources, the one right here in Shabbat, where Rav was asked. I remember Rav returns to Bavel in the year 223. So Rav is there right at the end of the Parthian era and era in the time of when it's the Sasanian. So Rav is there when this is happening. And Rav was asked, He was asked the halachic question, are you allowed to move a lit ner Chanukah if the Chabarim are coming and it's Shabbat? So Friday night, you lit your ner Chanukah, Friday afternoon, it's lit, it's now Friday night, and these guys are coming down and they're mad as all get out because here's a house that's not our temple where there's a candle lit and they're going to trash your house. Are you allowed to move it out of the way? And his answer was yes. And why is a, is a discussion in Masachakira and in, in Parakira? Not our concern about that. Concern is the context. All right. And so you see here that the, the danger doesn't seem to fit the time either. Um, we then looked at the issue of the Shamash. And I think we're, we're going to pick it up here because we may have done this quickly. Rava presents a rule which we know as the shamash. He says, Tzarich, this is, by the way, still on the flow. There's not, I haven't skipped one word in the Gemara. Amaravam, Tzarich ner acheret lishtamesh l'orat. Right? So Rava says you need another ner if you want to use its light. Okay? So now here's the question. And this, I'm going to phrase it differently than last week, just to kind of expand it and deepen it. If you, if you have your Yer Hanukkah and you want to read or play Monopoly or count money or whatever it is you want to do or get the recipe for latkes, you need another ner there, which means you cannot use just the ner Hanukkah, right? The ikam and but if you have a bonfire going or overhead lighting or whatever, electricity, you don't need another ner. So clearly the concern is not that you're getting benefit of any sort from their Hanukkah, because if so, then having another light there won't help. Some of the light is still near Hanukkah. It means that you have to mix it so that you have some near Hanukkah, but some other light, which would mean that as long as uh, 1%, 2%, it doesn't, doesn't say that the near Acheret has to be bigger or brighter than near Hanukkah. So there's no concern that a majority be not near Hanukkah. And so it sounds as if you could have a tiny little dinky pen light as long as a little bit of the light you're using is not near Hanukkah. Okay, which then drives us to the next halacha, which doesn't seem to fit that. If there's a bonfire going overhead lighting, you don't need it because you're reading by the overhead light. But then, but let's say that the person we're talking about is an important guy, and Rashi says an important guy always has his own private lamp. And now we're a little flabbergasted. What's the problem here? You're an important guy who normally has a private candle. You've got a dinky little candle that you're sitting next to. There's a roaring fire in the fireplace. There's an overhead porch light. And you still can't read without a shamash. Why not? So if you're going to tell me that the problem is because you're still getting some benefit from Menor Hanukkah, then being an Adam Chashuv doesn't change anything. You're sitting somewhere where you're sitting anywhere near the Nehru Hanukkah, having a Shamash doesn't help either. 
So we're a little confused as to what the issue here is. And the seeming explanation, shall we say the, the driving explanation, which seems to make all of this make sense, is that the issue of the shamash is not an issue of a prohibition of use in the spirit of but rather it's about the impression of the onlookers. An onlooker sees one candle sitting by the door and sees a person reading by that candlelight. They think that the candle is there for light. The minute that they see a second candle, they'll realize one of them is for light, but one of them is for something else. What's that? Hanukkah, come on in, have some terrible chocolate and some potato pancakes, and we'll tell you all about it. And pursue my is accomplished. Fine. But the minute that a person walks by and sees blazing light from a fireplace or overhead light and a dinky little candle, it's pretty obvious the dinky little candle is there not for utilitarian purposes, but for religious purposes, and Persumanes is affected. All is good. And therefore, if you're an, imp an important person who always has a private lamp, the overhead light doesn't help because people say, oh, he's a hush of a guy, he has his own private lamp, therefore you need a shamash. I get all of that. But then it's all about impression. Now, here's my question. What happens on the second night? Think about it. If the whole issue is that we want people on the outside to recognize that Ner Hanukkah is, is that the Ner is a Ner Hanukkah, not a Ner for light, a Ner Shimush, the minute you have two or three or four, or according to Beit Shammai the first night, eight, you're good to go. Because all you needed was one. You got two, you got five, you got seven, however many you got. I'm not even talking about the Mahadrin with multiple candles. So what is Rava talking about? Besides which, if you notice, Rava's wording is a little bit odd. Leora means to its light. And you would think that since seven out of the eight nights, you're going to have more than one candle, even if you live alone, he should have said Leoran to use their light. Instead, he says Leora, its light. Okay. The, we're assembling our questions. I believe at the end of this, we will have eight questions only because we're going to manipulate the questions so they'll become eight, so that it'll be all festive and Hanukkah-ish. Right, we could end up probably with about 15, but in any, any case, the next piece is the famous my Hanukkah piece, which is the Brita. We looked at this last week, the Brita from Megillat Ta'anit that tells us that uh, that uh, Hanukkah is on the 25th day of Kislev, and for eight days we can't fast. And then it tells in Hebrew, it tells us the story, the very famous story that we know. And we asked a few questions about the story. The story itself is very difficult. Um, the story is providing two things, because Migilat Ta'anit, you think of the first line, which is in, uh, in Aramaic, the last two words are likely uh, scribal error, it should be only, the, uh, sorry, the, these two words, probably a scribal error, it's probably just Le'itanot, but in any case, Hanukkah is 20, the 25th of Kislev, eight days, Hanukkah, you can't fast. That's all it says in Migilat Ta'anit. And Migilat Ta'anit is like that, it's got 35 dates, or a series of dates, like a sequence of days, where you're not allowed to fast. And in some cases, you're not allowed to have eulogies. It doesn't tell you what you're celebrating or why or how you celebrate. It's just telling you the date. Okay. So, uh, so the rest of this in Hebrew is this cholion that explains the story and tells the famous story. The problem with the famous story is, of course, that, it's, that it doesn't seem to work. The Yevanim came in and they made all the Shem and Tameh. I get that. Now, the first question I ask is, 
are we celebrating the finding of oil and the ability for oil to last eight days? Kind of difficult because again, take the story and erase each part. Let's say there's no miracle of the oil. There's just a war where the Jews beat the Greeks, take over the Beit HaMikdash, rededicate it, take sovereignty for over hundred years, et cetera, and no miracle was. Is there reason to celebrate? Of course there's reason to celebrate. And it fits Megidat Tanit perfectly, which many of the dates of Megidat Tanit are military victories of the Hashmonaim. On the other hand, flip it the other way. Let's say there's no victory, no sovereignty, no cleansing of the Beit HaMikdash, but the oil lasted eight days. Are you going to have a holiday? Of course not. Gemara is filled with stories like that. Rechidim and Dosa's daughter lighting vinegar for near Shabbat because she had no oil and it worked. Nobody made a yonta. We call it Shabbos, but nobody made a yonta for that. So it, it's difficult as an explanation of why we have the holiday. But there's other technical problems here. First of all, you don't need Shemin Tahor because Tumahutra Betzibor. If the whole Tzibor is Tamei, the Kohanim are Tamei, then you can, you can do the Avodah Betumah. Third of all, who opened up the who opened up the, the thing of the Kohen Gadol? Who finally opened it up? We assume one of the Kohanim who was just busy fighting and killing people. So he's Tameh. So how does that work? And the menorah is Tameh. So how does that work? There's just lots of problems built into even the famous story that we know. Um, but of course, the bigger question is the first one. Why is this the story? And by the way, if you take a look, I didn't mention this last week. If you take a look at Al-Anisim, Last week we hadn't uh, we hadn't uh, started it, but now I've been saying Alanisim for at least ten times since then. Um, and in Alanisim, there's no mention of this at all. In Alanisim, there is the war, there's the victory, there's the taking over the Mikdash. There is Hiliku Nerot but not anything of a miraculous nature. Just we came in and we reestablished the Avodah. So we have to understand what this story is doing here. There's two more pieces I want to show you uh, that are from a little bit later in the sugya. That was Afchafalaf Amudbet, there's Chafkimal Amudalaf, and then Chafkimal Amudbet. And um, they are both essentially from Ravuna. Ravuna, remember, was a student of Rav, the prized student of Rav. He's in Sura in the middle and towards the end of the third century. Right? And that actually makes a big difference. Amar Ravuna, Chatser Shiesla Shneip Tachim. Here we are in source 10. You have a Chatser, a courtyard that has two entrances. I picture like a gated community, if you will, that has two entrances. Tzrichashte neirot. You have to have two neirot, meaning you have to have a neir at entrance one and a neir at entrance two. Now, this presupposes that the chatzer is owned by an individual, and the individual is lighting at the entrance to the chatzer, not the entrance to his house. Because if there's multiple people living there, each person is lighting at the entrance to their house in the chatzer. In other words, you got a courtyard and houses around it, we did this in Erevin several times. We a couple of shiur where we taught, described the urban layout. So if there's a chatzer where all ten of us reside, then uh, then the we're gonna have the nair be each one of will have a nair outside of our house. But if we if I own the whole chatzer, then I'm gonna put it at the doorway of the chatzer. Okay, very nice. Let's say the chatzer has two gates, two entrances. All right, the south entrance and the north entrance. All right. Then you need two neirot. Amarava, lomran elamishte ruchot. He said that's only true if they're in two different directions. Like, for instance, somebody lives on the corner of uh, Cassio and Oakhurst. I'm just taking it out of the air. Cassio and Oakhurst. So, and they have a chatzer that, that 
is on that corner and there's a Casio door and an ochre store, then they need a nair at each door. But me aval me uh, But if let's say they have two doors on Casio, they don't need it. And then the Gemara goes into discussion, which we're not going to take our time with now, which is what's the difference? And the answer is it's because we're concerned that passers-by will see that there's your door and you don't have an air Hanukkah. And they'll assume they didn't see one on Cascio. You probably don't have one in Aerodrome either, and you're not observing the law, and that's not nice. But if they see the two doors, they're gonna, if they see one, they'll see the other doorway, and they'll know you lit one because they know both of them go to your house. Okay. I'm not gonna go into the issue. It's a it's a it's an, an intriguing issue of the nature of suspicion and the nature of uh, of of our obligation to rise above suspicion and be temnikim Hashem Israel. I'm not concerned with that. I'm gonna point out. But notice that Rav Huna speaks about shtei nerot, meaning Rav Huna says you have to have a ner here and a ner there. And he speaks about it in the singular. And you would assume that Rav Huna would say shtei kfutzot shel nerot, or kiflayim nerot, that you need double nerot. In other words, tonight, for instance, we're lighting five. Oh, I'm sorry, last night was four. Well, it's a fair joke, but we're lighting five. And so you would think he would say, you need five here and five there. Instead, he says, Shtei Neirot. And just like earlier with the Shamash, it sounds like everybody's talking about the first night of Hanukkah and nobody's getting past that. Or nobody's getting to the point where they say, well, everything I just said was only true about the first night, but afterwards it's different. But that's the terminology that's used. And now I'll show you the last piece, the last one of these. And then we're going to, I'm just laying out all the questions. And then we're going to present uh, several things to consider, and then we're going to look back at it, and hopefully it'll all fall into place. But I promise surprises. I promise surprises, and you're they're coming. Okay. Again, Rav Huna. Okay. Let's say you have a lamp, an oil lamp that has two openings. So what I want you to figure here is, you know, an oil lamp. Well, you know, a uh, ceramic oil lamp, and you have a cover, or you have those the holes that stick out, and there's two of them. Well, you could make that. Why not? It counts for two people. So, in other words, if I have an oil lamp that has an opening here and an opening here, and I fill it with oil and put a wick here and a wick here, it counts for two people. Notice for two people. Ravuna does not say it counts for the second night. Because again, it seems like like everybody in Bavel seems to be stuck on first night, and they don't want to talk about any night past it. it seems like Amarava. So Rava says a a a halacha which is inferred from there. They kind of extended. Let's say you take a bowl, just take a bowl and fill it with oil. The kifap tilot, you pop wicks into it. Pop 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 pop. So you've got a bowl full of oil and a bunch of wicks sticking out. Kafal lehakli olalacham b'nei adam. If you cover it with a kli, meaning you got picture a bowl, the bowl's full of oil, there's a bunch of wicks sticking out, and then you have got a cover that has holes in it, so that when you put the cover on top, wicks stick out. So it looks kind of like a birthday cake. Then, it counts for however many people there are, meaning however many people there are, not wicks. So let's say there's five wicks, it counts for five people. Now, Ravuna, Rav, Rava skips the more obvious application, which would be 
What a great invention for the fifth night. Matter of fact, why don't we just make something like that? Where we have a bowl and the bowl has eight holes and it comes with eight petit and you put the top on and you pop the one thing out the first night, two out the second night, three out the third night and light them and you got one thing. You don't have to have eight different things. But he, he won't have any of it. All he says is it counts for that many people. By the way, just to finish off, if you don't cover it with a kli, then it's like a bonfire. It doesn't count for even one person. Okay? So that's, um, that is, uh, that is the, the piece there. Okay. Didn't we, didn't we say that the, the candle should be laid out so that people would know which night it is? Uh, okay, good, very good. And here, there's none of that, right? We could right. willy-nilly, correct? So there's no concern about that either. Now, we never made that statement that only shows up in the Rishonim that the Nerod have to be in such a way that it's clear what night it is. The idea of the Chanukiah, of the Chanukiah, as we call it, being in a row and not being staggered or in and out so they can be seen. But that's something that shows up, actually, I think only, I don't know if it even shows up in the Rishonim. It's a relatively later thing. You have to remember, Chanukiot are later. First Chanukiot we have are our 13th or 14th century. Up until then, everybody had oil lamps, so they just had that many oil lamps they lit. Okay, which is the famous question of Tosfot. If I do Mahadrim and Mahadrim, how people are going to know what night it is? Right, we had talked about that last week. What about the length of uh, the, the being lit? Length meaning, of time. Meaning what? Uh, like how, how long? I mean, how long should it be lit? Because if some burn out quicker than others, then they might think there's there's less people in the house. Or, right. You know, so since... so again, it, let's go with uh, with Ravi here. Ravi says if I have the wick sticking out, that counts for that many people. So that means that um, that and this takes us back to 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 the Rambam Mahadri Mahadri. And let me just ask this question, Nigel. I'll come back to yours because okay. circle back. Mahadrin and Mahadrin, that means that I, I light seven, right? Because I got seven people in my family, correct? Is that what it means? I light seven and then tonight I light 35? Is that what it means? So according to the Rambam, that's exactly what it means. Let's take a look right here. The Rambam says in source 15, and the Rambam says very simply, the mitzvah is that each house has one. Whether there's a lot of people or one person in the house, one there. That's the way we wanted to see it. One who beautifies the mitzvah. He lights nerot per the amount of people in the house. Meaning the person lighting the candle, the head of the household, whoever it is, lights seven, lights 14, lights two, lights seven, lights four. However many people are in the house, that's what they light. That's the Rambam. And then the Rambam gives the famous example. If you have 10 people in the house, the first night you light 10, the next night you light 20, and last night you light 80. The Ramah doesn't say like that. The Ramah famously seems to adopt the Rambam, but not exactly. The Ramah says each person lights, which of course is very different. So now, Nigel, in the question that you asked about the bowl with the wicks, so if I am lighting seven in my scenario, I'm lighting seven, right? And I'm lighting seven because I got seven people in the family. So I'm lighting seven. And I pop it. I got seven things sticking out. I'm doing that to beautify the mitzvah, right? Because I only need one. So if one of them lasts the requisite half hour, I was Yotze. 
And if the other six fizzle out after five minutes, all right, I tried to be Mahadur, I wasn't so good at it. Mm. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's not like it's not like one of my kids is not Yotze, because that's not what it is. The mitzvah is one per house, and we have one per house. And the and the beauty fizzled out. It's kind of like you decorate the sukkah nicely, and some of the decorations fall down in these crazy winds we have right now, fell down on the fourth day of sukkah. So the end of sukkah, it wasn't as beautiful. All right, I tried to make it beautiful. It didn't work. But I still I still have a kosher sukkah, right? It'll be the same thing. All right. So that, the, that's the, the, the sugyot. Most of them are together, and then there's two pieces from a little bit later on that we have. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Before we were talking about the tumos of the Kohen, and you can still light the menorah, et cetera. Right. What about the issue of that we keep uh, saying to, to our kids that the essence is that they found one pach shemen that was, that was tahar? Right. What about the idea, the fact that a liquid, uh, a liquid oil does not, is not Mechabal Tuma? It, it is. Oil is Mechabal Tuma because oil actually has a dean of, first of all, Mashkin, right? Oil is one of the seven liquids, and Mashkin are Mechabal Tuma. And second of all, the, the fact that it's part of the Kodesh kind of raises its stakes. If you think about it, let's say from the, um, the uh, end of Masachat Chagiga, for instance, the holier something is, the more sensitive it is to tuma. So it would be makalo tuma. But the problem we asked is, how does it help? The menorah is tummy also, right? So that's mm -hmm. why I want to show you this last thing before launching into sort of looking at it freshly with an introduction. Yeah, somebody had a question. Kurt? Somebody had a question? Okay, all right. So one last thing I want to show you is, uh, is an interesting take because the reality is that if you look through the literature, and this would be a full survey to do, the literature in Chazal about the history of Hanukkah, not the history of the holiday, the history of the events, meaning 164 BCE and what happened, uh, you'll find a lot of different versions of what happened. Uh, and so remember we asked the question, how can you take the Shemin and put it into the Menorah, the Menorah's Tameh, and in the, story, in the famous story that we saw here from my Hanukkah, we didn't, the, the Brita doesn't really address it. But remember, what we're looking at in this passage is from the scholion of Megillah Tanit, the explanation of Megillah Tanit. We, we only looked at a small part of the scholion. It's much longer than that, and it goes on, and it tells the following story, but it shows up in a different version in Masachat Menachot. So here you have it in source 14. <clears throat> and Masachat Menachot here is discussing the prohibition of having any um, items, fashioning any items for yourself that are too close in style and in frame to those of the Beit HaMikdash. Right? So we have the following. You're not allowed to build your house to have it be modeled exactly after the Beit HaMikdash. Or to have like a portico that's like the vestibule of the Mikdash. Have your backyard look like the Azara. The question is, what does that mean? Does it mean the same size? Does it mean the same appurtenances? Okay, that's a discussion. Shulchan keneged shulchan. To have your table be look like the shulchan. Now, by the way, that would be both very expensive and really in, uh, impractical because very low, etc. And not very big. Menorah keneged menorah. Right? I'll tell you a story about that in a second. 
אבל עושה הוא של חמישה ושל שישה ושל שמונה ושל שמונה, but you can make a menorah, meaning a menorah exactly like the Beit HaMikdash, as long as you have five stems or six stems or eight stems, you can't make seven, because the Beit HaMikdash is seven. ושל שבעה לא יעשה, you shouldn't make it seven, אפילו משם מיני מתכות, even from other kind of metals, meaning silver, bronze, etc., even though the menorah is gold, but the minute you make it seven, even from any other metals, it's still prohibited. Metals, sounds like I can make one out of paper mache. I can make one out of clay. I can make one out of wood. said, no, you can't even make it shell eights. Okay, now, just a little story before we go ahead. Rabbi Grumman, my, my uh, dear Rebbe from high school, told us this story, told me this story, many, many, when I was in high school, told me this story. He was very friendly with Rabbi Schneerson, and he went to visit Rabbi Schneerson, um, and Rabbi Grumman at the time, old-timers in LA remember this, was the rabbi of the young Israel of Los Angeles. And this, by the way, is, on, is, is one of the record-setting young Israels, because the only young Israel in LA, it's actually in the place it's named after, right? Young Israel of Los Angeles is actually in Los Angeles on Spalding and uh, Melrose, I think, and uh, and he went to visit Rabbi Schneerson sometime in the 60s, and Rabbi, and, and Rabbi Schneerson said to him, you have to change the menorah in your shul. So evidently, the LA Times or some other paper years earlier had run a human interest story on the new rabbi at the shul, and they had a picture of the shul, and Rabbi Schneerson saw it because he read everything, and he remembered it because he remembered everything, and then he mentioned years later, Rabbi Grumman, when he walked in, he said, you know, the menorah in your shul, it's too similar to the Beit HaMikdash, you got to change something. I remember Rabbi Grumman being very impressed by that. In any case, that's my story. Now, um, Rabbi Yosef Yehuda says that Kanakama says you cannot make, you're not allowed to make a menorah of seven of any metal. He says you may not even make it of wood. Why? Kederach shasu malche beit hashmonai. Because that's similar to the menorah made by the Chashmonaim. Now, Machei Beit Chashmonai is the same phrase used in the story of my Chanukah. It, they weren't kings yet. It's just referring to the fighters to become the kings. Amrulo Misham Ra'aya, and they said to him, no, they weren't wood. You know what it was? Shipudim Shel Barzel Hayu. They had metal skewers. And I'll tell you about them in a minute. The Chifum Bibats. They plated them with tin. They were metal. They plated them with tin. And, and, and that was the menorah. I'll tell you the story in a minute. Hashiru asum shokesef. They got richer. They made them out of silver. Chazru vashiru asum When they got richer, they made them out of gold. Now, what's going on? So the way that we find this in other Tanitic literature is that when the Chashmonaim came in, they couldn't use the menorah. This is our question. They couldn't use the menorah. They had to destroy all of the kingdom because they became Tameh. So what did they do? They set seven skewers in the ground, plated them with tin, and lit them, and that was the menorah. They lit all seven of them. So that's where they put the shaman. So that solves one of the problems we asked about how could you use the menorah. They weren't using the menorah. Now, interesting thing, uh, Sperber, has a, who's one of the world experts on this, with the reality of the period, says that the Greeks had a weapon which was a bayonet with a, uh, a lamp on the back side. The side you'd hold up against your shoulder was a, a cup. 
And so at night at the camp, you would take your bayonet, turn it upside down, stick it in the ground, and put oil in the cup, this is the original Swiss Army knife, and light it, and you have light in the evening. He said, that's what the, the Hashmonim used. They got these weapons from the Greeks because they got everything else from them and beat them up. And they brought seven of them in, stuck them in the ground, had the thing and put the oil in there. It's a very interesting thing. That does solve one of our problems, but it doesn't solve the majority of our issues. So I want to give a quick introduction, go back and then take a look at all of our sugyot with a different light. We started off by, um, with a premise. And the premise is that, first of all, um, when, you, when you hear the word Tan Rabbanan, you're hearing a Brita. That's accurate. When you're hearing a Brita, you're hearing Torah Eretz Yisrael. True, but not exclusively so. And that when you hear a Brita, that a Brita was composed before the completion of the Mishnah. True, but not exclusively so. We have what we call Braitot Bavliot, Babylonian Braitot. And some of these Babylonian Braitot come from the era immediately after the Mishnah. Not much later, but immediately after the Mishnah. That's part one. Part two is we even have Braitot that are Eretz Israeli Braitot from the period of the Mishnah that get reworked and, and enhanced a little bit in Bavel. How do I know that? Because I see them in their earlier form in, let's say, Midrash Halacha or in the Yushalmi or in the Mishnah, maybe, or in the Tosefta. And then I see them in Talmud Bavli, and suddenly there's a few more words. There's a couple of Babylonian Aramaic words in there that show me that they have been enhanced in Bavel. And I can bring you lots of examples, and if you want, we can actually share on that topic. I don't want to do it now because I want to get to the, to the issue here. Here is the, pro the first problem, not the first problem in the order we did it, the first problem I want to remind you of in this sugya. The larger question, of course, is this whole thing of mahadrin is just throws us off. But what does the word mahadrin mean? So remember, we said mahadrin means those who beautify, right? So I'm, as I pointed out, this notion doesn't exist anywhere else in halacha. That here's the way to do a mitzvah, but mahadrin do it better. It's the only place it appears in halacha. The other thing is, though, and this is now was not last week, is that the word mahadrin is never used by the Tanaim. It's never used by the Tanaim. There is a notion of hidur mitzvah. You're all going to nod your heads. We all know about hidur mitzvah. Not used by the Tanaim. The Tanaim, there's a famous drasha that we have, which is uh, on the pasuk, uh, which is right? beautify yourselves with mitzvot make a beautiful lulav make a beautiful sukkah we're familiar with that it's never called hidur mitzvah in other words hidur mitzvah is not a phrase that the Tanaim ever used and therefore, mehadrin, as some sort of a group, is not a group that Tanaim would have identified because that's just not a verb they use. So what's going on here? Rashi actually gives us the clue with one simple word. And Rashi was on to us. Ha-mehadrin, achar ha-mitzvot. Now, the minute you see achar, you know that mehadrin can't mean to beautify because you don't beautify after mitzvot. 
The Rambam said, that's fine. So Shama Friedman, an article he wrote, I don't know how long ago, 40 years, maybe 30 years ago, presents the argument that Mahadri, that the whole notion of Hidur Mitzvah as a phrase, not as an idea, the idea exists in the Torah, but as, an, as a phrase, the idea of Hidur Mitzvah is something that shows up only after the period, really, of the Amoraim. It's late. But it's certainly not in the, in, in the, among the Tanaim. And what does it mean? So it's an interesting thing, is that what does the word Lahader mean in Aramaic? It means to run after or to return, to run after something, try to catch it. And you know that that shows up, you've seen it a million times in Gemara. Mahader Amaya, you have to run after water, right? The Gemara in Bracho talks about how far you have to go to find water before davening if you're on the road. Mahader Admil, Mahader Ad Parsa, the discussion. So Rashi reads the word Mahadrin here as a Babylonian Aramaic word. And what does he say? Hamehadrin achar mitzvot. People who run after mitzvot, what do they do? Which means, by the way, that this word here, Hamehadrin, is added in in Bavel. Well, if that's added in Bavel, then so is this. So I'm going to propose a theory, which I think is, it's not mine, but I think it's, it's fairly well anchored. And once you have it, everything's going to fall into place. The celebration of Hanukkah developed, and I'm going to raise one more issue before we get to this, which is also going to be problematic, but then we'll solve. Abbas Salvechik was of the opinion that at least according to the Rambam, the mitzvah of Hadlakat near Hanukkah was only instituted after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. Which, by the way, if you think about it, makes a lot of sense. Because until the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash, Hanukkah was a Beit HaMikdash holiday. We're dedicating the rededication of the Beit HaMikdash, the rededication of the Mizbeach. The holiday is called Hanukkah Mizbeach. And quite solid proof for this idea shows up in the fact that Josephus, in the Antiquities, in Book 12, when he tells the story, says that ever since we've been celebrating a holiday and we call the holiday Fota. Fota means lights. And then Josephus says, I suppose the reason is because they were suddenly given the right to worship freely without any expectation, like light at the end of the tunnel, surprise. In other words, he doesn't go for the obvious explanation, which is it's called lights because we light candles. And he certainly doesn't go for the other obvious explanation and say it's called lights because there's a miracle of light lasting eight days. Instead, he comes up with some of that explanation, which means he doesn't know about the mitzvah of Ner Hanukkah. Now, Josephus, remember, is at the end of the Beit HaMikdash. Remember, he is one of the rebel leaders against the Romans, and then at Yod Fati surrenders, and he joins the Romans. So he's the end of the first century. and doesn't know about the mitzvah of Ner Hanukkah. The problem with that, of course, is that when we talk about Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, we're talking about during the times of the Mikdash, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai ceased to exist at the destruction, maybe a little before. You never hear Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai as active schools after the destruction of the Beit HaMikdash. So when is this discussion going on? All right. And that's going to help us solve this. So now let's take a look at the sugya. I'm going to show it to you in a slightly different light. Are you ready? You might want sunglasses. Here we go. Okay. Now, 
I'll tell you what, what I did with the color coding as follows. Blue, the blue is Tanaitic material from Eretz Israel. The yellow, the red with the yellow highlighting is Babylonian additions. Let's take a look. Tanarabanan, I'm going to read the Bright of Merit Israel, the original Bright of Merit Israel, and then we have to explain how Beit Shammai will get involved. Mitzvah Chanukah, what's the Mitzvah of Chanukah? Beit Shammai Omrim Yom Rishon Madlik Shmona Mikan Vaelach Pochet Vaholech. Beit Hillel Omrim Yom Rishon Madlik Achat Mikan Vaelach Mosif Vaholech. In other words, what's the mitzvah? The mitzvah is either one to eight or eight to one. That's not Mahadrimah. That's the mitzvah. The mitzvah is to light eight candles, seven to or one to those are eight. That's the mitzvah. Beit Shammai and Hillel have an essential disagreement about how to do the mitzvah. Because in Eretz Yisrael, that's how they did it. By the way, I'm going to add further. In Eretz Yisrael, they lit indoors. Now, in Bavel, they had a whole different approach. What was their approach to the mitzvah? Ner Ishu Veto. That's the Babylonian tradition. And in Bavel, there were people who were Mahadrin, Mahadrin, Babylonian Aramaic, who would chase after mitzvot, who wanted to do more. Ner They would have one for each person. In Bavel, they never heard about, and they heard about, they didn't have the practice at all of adding candles each night or subtracting each night. Whatever you did in Bavel, you did the same each night. That was Bavel. Now, let's see the sugyot, and you'll see how it all plays out. In Bavel, they had ner ishu veto, and mahadrin were ner l'chol achad v'chad. What did they think about the custom in Israel of adding or subtracting each night? Which, by the way, would be one per house, not per person. Right? They, they thought, that's mahadrin minahadrin. Whether they were approving or not approving, not a, not a problem. That's what they do in Israel. They're using the Babylonian phrase. The ones who really chase after me, that's what they do in Israel. In Israel, what do they do? One to eight or eight to one. Now let's see it. We have, this is followed by two stories. These two stories come from Israel. Ula brings us a story from Israel about two rabbis disagreeing about Beit Shammai Hillel. And we ask the question, why are they disagreeing about a Mahadrin and Mahadrin? And why are they disagreeing about the reason for the Mahlok and Mahadrin? It's getting too twisty. The answer is they're not. In Israel, the custom was Ner Hanukkah, you lit one the first night, two the second night, three, unless you like the other approach and you started with eight and went down to one. And there's a machloket about what that was about in Israel. And then we hear a story from Israel. Rabbi Yochanan tells a story about the town of Sidon in Israel, where there was one elder who did like Pechamai, one elder did like Hillel, and they gave their reasons. Now, by the way, remember we asked the question, how can you do like Pechamai? Remember, I asked the question, how could Beit Shammai Hill be involved with this if it only starts after the Chorban? So I believe, I'm going to take you off share for a second because I want to take you somewhere else. So I believe that when it comes to the issue of, um, uh, when it comes to the issue of, um, What we're dealing with is not a direct statement, but an application. I'll show you what I mean. Um, let's I'll go right to share. Show you the share here. And here we are. Okay, good. We are looking at the Mishnah. All right, does everybody see the Mishnah? Do you guys see it there? 
Now, this is a, a whole parak about Bechamba and Hillel and their disagreements about. Um, I don't see it yet, Rabbi. Okay, hold on one second. And you see it now? No. Okay, my apologies. How's that? Yes. Okay. Now? Okay, good. We have an interest. Uh, it's a series of, of disputes of machlokot between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel about things relating to the meal. And this Mishnah records a machlok at Beit Shammai and Hillel about Havdalah, what the proper order of Havdalah is. It presumes Havdalah around a meal. It's a different story. Now, the bracha on the light. What happens? Beit Shammai Omrim, Shibara Maor Haesh. What does Beit Shammai say the bracha is on the candle? He created the light of the fire. And Beitil will say, no, the bracha that should be said is he who created the lights of fire. Okay, so the Gemara records that there's actually two machlokot here. One machlokot is about Boreyan Shibara, not our problem here. It's actually a Sugim Sachim, we talked about it. And the other one is Maor versus Maore. And the Gemara says that Beit Shammai's position is Chada Nehora Ika Benura. There's one light in the flame. And Beit Hill says Tuva Nehora Ika Benura. There's multiple lights in the flame. So what you could essentially do is say as follows, that in Eretz Yisrael, the custom arose after the Chorban, when we start lighting candles, to say, we want to express Esh. We want to express fire, because that was the story of the miracle. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. And that's what we want to express. So if you're a Beit Hillelite, not that Beit Hillel ever weighed on, on the issue, but if you're a Beit Hillelite, you're going to say, oh, there's multiple lights in, in the H. Therefore, we should have the light multiply. And Beit Shammai's position would be there's only one light in it, so therefore we should diminish to that one light. Maybe. I'm just throwing out a possibility. In other words, that there was a position of Beit Shammai Hillel about something, not Hanukkah, about something else, about light. <coughs> is that the minute that we had <clears throat> the position, <clears throat> um, the position that uh, you have to light multiple candles, if you were Beit Shammaiite, you naturally went to one. If you're Beit Hillelite, you naturally went to multiple, you know, from one to multiple or multiple to one. I'd possibly. Now, you take a look at the next sugya and you'll see the same thing happening. You notice that, and this is Brita, is a completely Babylonian Brita. Ner Chanukah mitzvah lehanicha, the one I'm highlighting right now, uh, right there. Mitzvah lehanicha al petach betob machutz. The mitzvah is to put it by your doorway. Last Wednesday, I made the argument that putting Ner Chanukah outside was a Babylonian thing, and it was part of the spirit of Hanukkah as being a statement of protest. Based on the homi drash about Karen Hashor, etc., is that it was a statement of protest of, and, and this was a response to the Zoroastrian threat, etc. But notice, regardless of that, that the language here is the singular. You put it outside. And then what kind of times of danger is it? Rashi picks it up right away. It's a Babylonian danger. In other words, this is a Babylonian tradition to put it outside. And in Babylonia, if there's a danger because it happens to be the night that they're rampaging, you can put it inside your door, inside your house. Rava then comes and says, you need, now where's, by the way, where does Rava live? Rava lives in Bavel. 
And Rava says, you need a shamash. Why do you need a shamash? Because you only got one candle. Because you're in Bavel. Second night, you got one candle. Third night, you got one candle. You're Mahadrin, you have multiple for each person. Fine, but that's Mahadrin. Otherwise, you have one. Second night, you only have one. So all the discussions here are about one. You then move down to Ravuna. Ravuna says, if I've got a chatzer with two openings, I need a nair at each corner. Why? Because there's only one candle. In other words, I don't have multiple candles. I can't say, well, I got, you know, on the third night, I need to have three here and three there, because there's no such thing as three and three. And the biggest proof of that is right here. Yitzhak Baradif, and I pointed out when we learned it, quotes Ravuna as saying, if you have a nair with two openings, it counts for two people. And he does not say it counts for the second night. Because in Bavel, the second night's no different than the first night. Now, bringing it, bring it all together, that's why Rava, again, in Bavel, says that if you have a bowl and you cover it up, a bowl full of oil and cover it up and have pop wicks out, it counts for that many people, but not for that many nights. Putting it all together, what do we have? In Bavel, the way that Hanukkah was commemorated was you put a nair outside your house. And that nair has to clearly be there as a statement, as a religious statement, as, a, as holiness, as commemorating the nace. It has to be, but it has to be outside the house. In certain times, you can bring inside the house. Single nair. You want to really be mahadera achar mitzvah, you want to really chase after mitzvot, have one for each person in the family. But it represents a person. This is my nair. For eight nights, I got a nair. Very nice. And therefore, if I have multiple wicks, they can count for multiple people. And therefore, if I want to read, I have to have another nair there to read with, because I've only got one that's near Hanukkah. That's in, that's in Bavel. And one nair every night, correct? Same thing. The numbers don't yeah. change in Bavel at all. And if you look at every one of the, of the pieces in the sugya, that's Babylonian, clearly Babylonian, Rav Huna, Rava, etc., it always talks about one nair. On the other hand, when you talk about Beit Sham, Beit Hillel, meaning multiple nairot, that's entirely an Israeli discussion. You have the two rabbis in Israel debating what Beit Sham and Hillel are disagreeing about. You have the two rabbis in Sidon practicing this way and that way, which by the way, why is that legitimate? Because they're not ruling like Beit Shammai over Beit Hillel. They're saying, you know what? I'm taking Beit Shammai's principle and applying it here. I'm taking Beit Hillel's principle in time. But it's not that they had a debate about that issue because otherwise I can't do Beit Shammai anymore. But it's basically an application of what they said. Okay. So when all is said so and is done... It, sorry, is go it ahead. the Shammai's the then? Just the Shammai's is the one can't, one light? No, is that, there is no that modern day thing. You got to remember, Shamash, which we saw in our sugi, it's right here, right? The Shamash, which is, I wouldn't say an invention of, but Rav is the one who introduces it right here. The Shamash is there for one purpose, and that is if I want to read or use the light for any other purpose, I need to have another light there. Ah, right? Okay. And the reason seems to be so that. And so that everyone will recognize that this nair is not for use. This nair is to commemorate something. This nair is symbolic. This nair is whatever is not for use. Because if it's dark, imagine yourself before the year 1850 and you're outdoors and it's dark, it's nighttime and there's a candle and you're reading. Anybody walking by thinks you're using the candle to read. They won't know that there's any sort of, you've lost the whole point of lighting a nair. And therefore, Rava says you need another nair. And therefore, if you're... 
If you've got full full light there, overhead light, a bonfire, you don't need in there because you're reading by the by the bonfire, right? So in Babel, they had two two lights then outside. If you wanted to read, correct, correct. So in Babel, there'd be one light by your door, and if you wanted to read or check your latke recipe or check your books or whatever it was, you had to have another light so that anybody passing by would see that there was a nair there for a religious, symbolic, historic purpose, not for use. Correct, absolutely. So what you see is that there's these two very different approaches to commemorating, but not so different. Meaning the, 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 the com commonality is far greater than the difference. And that is that we celebrate Hanukkah by lighting Neirot. But which Neirot, where, how many, how many is, and where, that's where the real difference lies. What happens is over time, the Minhagar Israel, as you can see, gets shaped in. And so therefore, by the way, none of this discussion important, none of this discussion appears in Talmud Yerushalmi. Talmud Yerushalmi is almost, almost silent on Hanukkah. Right? But the which is its own, its own package. But um what happens here is that the Bavli shapes it so that both traditions now come in. So that now if I'm living in Bavel in, let's say the eighth century, I'm gonna light multiple candles outdoors increasing every night. Cause I'm gonna do Beit Hillel, I'm gonna do Mahadrim and Mahadrim cause who wouldn't? But that's how, how the way it developed. Now, of course, we are all products of Talmud Bavli. Talmud Bavli is the law book for the Jewish people. And we're all products of that. And as a result of that, we all do that. But what, what I tried to do over the course of these last two shiurim is to see how it evolved from its original custom to here. So now we have to take a look back at one more thing, which is how the Nes Pachashemen and the story of the Nes Pachashemen, which as I mentioned, has, is riddled with its own issues, how it became so prominent. And the answer to that actually lies in something that we heard two days ago. There's little question that the celebration of Hanukkah, certainly for the first hundred years, because we know Hanukkah was celebrated right after the event and continued to be celebrated, for the first hundred years and maybe all the way to the destruction, maybe, but certainly until Herod, that Hanukkah was celebrated as, and, and Herod's time also, as a Beit HaMikdash holiday. It was focused around the Beit HaMikdash, it was around the, re, the reconquering of the Beit HaMikdash, the cleansing of the Beit HaMikdash, the rededication of the Beit HaMikdash, Chanukah Tamizbeach. That's what it was. The problem, of course, is the same problem faced by the great rabbis at Yavne about Pesach. How do you keep Pesach to be a meaningful event? How does the Seder become a meaningful event without Korban Pesach? And that's the genius of Yavne that created the Seder. Our Seder was created at Yavne. And then along the way, in the last 1800 years, it got embellished, 1900 years, continues to get embellished every year. But it was full, it was created in Yavne and, and it became uh, essential and core to the Jewish experience. That question, it's the most significant evening in the year, Pesach night. I have a question. Hanukkah, Hanukkah, in a sense, has the same thing, which is that Hanukkah, the emphasis on Hanukkah shifted. And it shifted from a military victory, which at this point is laughable, meaning, meaning to be living in the year 100 and celebrate a military victory becomes laughable in a painful way. What are we, nuts? The Romans just destroyed the Beit HaMikdash. 
we have to move from place to place. We have to hide out to learn, especially in the year 140 after Bar Kokhba. So the focus and the emphasis shifts from that component to a much more spiritual component. One that, as you can see, the brilliance of Chazal is that it made it through 2,000 years. Now, what's interesting is that in the last 100 years, the focus on Hanukkah has shifted back and has become much more about strength and about military, hopefully balanced with a sense of the purpose of that and the spirit. But none of that was, was prominent in 14th century Germany or in 18th century, in 17th century Russia. It wasn't because it would be laughable. And so the story of the Nez Pach Hashem and then achieves its prominence. And there's a very good biblical anchor for that. In the Haftarah that we read this past Shabbat, the second to last line, Zechariah, Hashem says at the end of the vision of the menorah, says, This is what God's word is to Zerubavel, the political leader of the Jewish community. Not with might, not with power, rather with my spirit. And understood properly what that pasuk probably means is not only with power, not only with might, but also with my spirit. This is how it'll happen. And so we're, we're part of the time we celebrate the power, part of the time we celebrate the spirit. Ultimately, it's the two of them together that help shape the beautiful image, a picture of Jewish sovereignty in Eretz Israel, the, the power, the strength, and the spirit. So... Hopefully we have a better understanding of Hanukkah and a better understanding of the sugyot here. And, I'd like to um, hear, uh, what? Uh, Manny, what? I think you're you're muted. I'd like to hear about this concept of mahadrin le mahadrin as it applies contemporarily. And so, the, right. So what the, happened? Uh, yeah. Especially you're talking about in Kashrus, especially in Eretz Israel, where. Right. Everybody is confused about this idea because it certainly shows, connotes that, that you might be over in Baltosif. There's a, the concept right. of Baltosif. So, if so you, you know, prepare something to bring this concept of Mahadrin and Mahadrin, how it's applied today, and what are the pros and cons of, of the value of it? Oh, so you, you, you want it's a request for a future share? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay, good. So I'll put it on the, uh, you know, this is going out from Manny to Marsha, Mahadrim and Mahadrim, we take requests. Um, anyways, Chagurim Sameach, everybody. I want everybody to be able to get to, to show on time. And right. uh, and Chanukah Sameach. And next week we'll go back to Psachim, but Manny, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see what I can do about putting that together. That's Evan M, Mahadrim and Mahadrim. Say it again. M and M. M and M. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, I guess Eminem's our Mahadrin. Okay, everybody have a Chag Urim Sameach, or as a teacher of mine likes to say, Me'orot L'Simcha. <laughs>